0: A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show.
1: Hey, if you're a long-time listener, thanks for coming back. And if you're a brand new listener, uh, buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> this is going to be uh, it's going to be a bumpy ride today, not because uh, not because of the cold medication I've taken, but just uh, the times that we live in. Look, I'll just get right out to, I'll, I'll get right to it here. Anybody who is even mildly paying attention or thinking about how things are, you know, what's going on around us, is feeling uneasy. And and I tell you this not to, you know, feed that fear, but just to, to verify, you're not imagining that uh, some things are just very off right now. Things that we have taken for granted, institutions that we have leaned upon for generations seem to be on the verge of crumbling. And it seems like there's, there's a, a sense of just chaos right there at the gate. Um, and this can apply to geopolitical considerations, economic considerations. Uh, for instance, you know, you, you may be making more money than you've been making even, you know, two or three years ago, but you can't buy as much stuff as you could back then. Why? Well, as Mike Mahary from the 10th Amendment Center explains, it's because price inflation is eating up your paycheck. So my point here, again, isn't to uh, feed those fears or to get you anxious, but I, I just want to validate. You recognize that things are not as they should be. You probably wonder, okay, what's coming next? We're all thinking that. Not everybody's saying it. Some people are finally openly coming out. Well, yeah, this this seems really, you know, dark. I'm not even sure what, what's going on. And that's okay. My goal here is not to, uh, you know, to give you the dirty, juicy secrets of the Illuminati and whatnot. Um, look, once you start chasing conspiracy theories, you can spend a lot of otherwise useful time going down rabbit holes, and you'll find interesting stuff. There's no doubt about it. In fact, you'll actually find some pretty interesting things that are, that turn out to be true, because there is, there's always a small element of truth in every conspiracy theory. But here's the danger. It takes you away from focusing your time, your efforts, and, and most importantly, your moral energy, of which each of us only has a finite supply on any given day, and it focuses all of those things on stuff that doesn't really matter. So this program is not just about uh, giving you some good food for thought and, and identifying, hey, these are some of the problem areas or these are some of the likely threats that we're looking at. But it's, it's more about helping you understand that uh, you don't just have to sit back and take it. You don't have to just, you know, well, I guess I'll try to, you know, enjoy the ride as we, you know, spiral the drain here. There have been difficult periods like this before. Now, if you're, if you're into books, I would recommend Strauss and Howe's The Fourth Turning. Historical cycles that have played out before, and just a couple of them to, to illustrate. Um, the founding period followed by, uh, or I'm sorry, the Revolutionary War followed by the founding period. That was a fourth turning in American history, as was the war between the states and Reconstruction, as was the Great Depression and World War II. Now, you'll notice that war figured prominently in every single one of those fourth turnings. But on the other side of every one of those climactic, you know, cycles, the landscape looked very different when the sun came back out again, once the storm had had subsided. Well, we are in the midst of a, a magnificent storm, and in fact, the stakes are probably as high as they've ever been all the various factors that are involved. I mean, I'm looking at some of the events of things that are going on in the Middle East, and it's like, well, it just seems like a foregone conclusion. We are headed for, you know, much, much wider conflict. And that's, that's not to be fatalistic or say, oh, all is lost. It's just people have been through these tough times before. And I think the key takeaway here is what determines whether you have a positive or a more negative outcome on the other side of these crises comes down to the character of the people who are going through it. So now I know I'm making you uncomfortable because, well, does that mean I have a personal responsibility? It does. This isn't something you're going to be able to outsource to other people. So with that in mind, let's let's dive into a few topics here. First of all, let me thank my sponsors who make this possible. I want to thank Ironsight Brewing Company. That's my friend John Harvey. This is a subscription coffee service. And if you're a coffee drinker, I would encourage you, go to his website, Ironsight, just like you'd think it's spelled, S-I-G-H-T, IronsightBC.com. From the roaster to your cup, in less than 72 hours, it's got a great selection to choose from, some really cool swag as well. And uh, I would encourage you, check it out, and, and see if he can do something for you. Also, thanks to lifesavingfood.com, tmcpnation.com, and quiltandsew.com. Well, I want to share with you an, an article by Paul Rosenberg. And maybe it's because, you know, we're, we're the New Hampshire primary was yesterday. I think it was a kind of foregone conclusion. Trump carried, you know, the New Hampshire primary. I don't even know why, why the Republicans are having, you know, primaries at this point. Everything that has been thrown at the orange man has has not dimmed the support for him. And, and I got to clarify this. It's not so much that, oh, Donald Trump is all that. He is the greatest leader that ever came on the scene. He's, he's not. He is a great leader in, in many respects, but he is not, you know, this pure as the driven snow hero on the white horse here to save us all. He is, uh, he is what actually in fourth turning terminology is a great champion. Lincoln was a great champion. And I use him as an example because I don't like Abraham Lincoln and I think Abraham Lincoln did a lot of damage. Nonetheless, he was a decisive leader who could make the tough decisions during difficult times. Like it or not, FDR and and his contemporary Winston Churchill, they were also great champions. So my point is, when things get really tough, only really strong people can endure. And it's not so much that people are, yes, yes, he is our great champion. He is the greatest. Trump is, is the only one who can solve our problems. What you are seeing in terms of the support for him, I believe, and I could be wrong, it's, I believe it's much more a manifestation of the disgust and and just the revulsion that many of us have toward the ruling elite at this point. You know the ones I'm talking about, right? The ones who talked uh, about how, you know, it was so important that we force everyone to take the jab, that we force everyone to wear masks. The ones that locked down our communities, the ones that incessantly spend money that generations from now, our kids' kids are going to be trying to pay off these debts that were incurred with where they had no say whatsoever. The ones who were endlessly trying to erase our privacy or trying to take away our independence and our personal freedoms, The ones who are trying to enmesh us in in wars and controversies and intrigues all around the world, while at the same time denying us and depleting our freedoms here at home. Funny how that works. And it's the disgust that we feel for those systems, those corrupted systems... That is what's driving most of the support for Trump. By the way, I have to throw this out there, and I'm sorry if this sounds like, oh, boy, you're kind of gloating over somebody's misfortune, but apparently the L.A. Times laid off 115 writers yesterday. In fact, a lot of them were their diversity hires, you know, ones that were there to cover the uh, the black news and the Latino news and, you know, the woke news. They laid them off. Now, that's in part because newspaper is a dying industry. I don't say that with a whole lot of satisfaction because terrestrial radio is not too far behind it. But I also remember these are the same types of individuals who were writing headlines like, yes, uh, you know, uh, gloating about the deaths of the unvaccinated is ghoulish, but it may be necessary. As Paul Rosenberg put it so beautifully a couple of days ago, he says, you got to remember these are people who openly wished for death and harm on the non-compliant. They were absolutely okay with it. They wanted to excommunicate us from society. They wanted us to suffer. They wanted us to lose our livelihoods and withhold medical care if necessary. You weren't compliant. Now, I'm a pretty forgiving person, but I'm not about to make nice with people who hold that, that point of view, that my point of view is so pure and so righteous that I should be able to force it on other people and should be able to gloat when they die or when they suffer. That's that's a sick mentality. I'm just pointing this out that, uh, yeah, all these layoffs at the LA Times, kind of ironic, you know, kind of strange how what goes around comes around. And when somebody needs a friend or needs someone to stand up for them and advocate for them, you know, if you've been treating other people like trash, I don't think you can be too surprised when you look around and realize, hey, there's nobody standing up for me. Yeah, you might have thought about that. Or you might have considered that before you were so willing to throw everybody else under the bus. All right. I know it sounds vindictive, but I had to get that off my chest. Now, when we come back from our break, I want to talk with you about uh, the the concept of can we attain righteousness through the generous application of politics? I know most of us would be immediately saying, well, no, of course not. (laughs) I want you to hear Paul Rosenberg's explanation of why this is the case. It's not possible to create a righteous society by just, you know, applying enough politics to it. In fact, what he advocates for is a separation of politics and righteousness. And I think he's right on the money. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Again, thank you so much for choosing
1: to listen. I know there are a lot of other voices you can choose from, and I'm just one of many. I'm not even that great at what I do. But uh, I'll tell you, my heart is in this 100%. If you were to ask me, what kind of purpose are you trying to fulfill with your life? My purpose is to try to speak truth, to try to bring more light than heat to the discussion and and to help people, you know, find their way out of that swamp of misinformation that we've all been in at some point. And my greatest gratitude to the people who uh, marched their way out of that swamp ahead of me, but were kind enough to leave some uh, markers along the way showing that, hey, the footing is better here or this one, this way leads to higher ground. Paul Rosenberg is one of those individuals. I've expressed my appreciation for him before I have to do it again because I I have I really feel a debt to this guy. Not because I believe every word he says and must march in lockstep, but his approach is so gentle and yet filled with light. And, and And I know you may think I'm nutty when I say this. There's love that comes through in his writing. He's not telling you this because look, I'm so much smarter than you, and I you're gonna sit here at my feet and just nod appreciatively appreciatively at everything I say. No, he's very, very good at pointing out and distilling the essential truths of what's at stake. I've seen very few writers who can do this and and do it with the the gentleness and the, the idea that, look, here are some things you may want to consider, but he allows you to come to the truth on your own terms, which is super important if you are looking to change hearts and minds. It has to be a voluntary choice on the part of the person whose heart or mind is being changed. So let's talk about separation of righteousness and politics. Paul says righteousness is a seldom heard word in modern life, but the concept is still very much with us. In fact, political arguments all through the West focus on shows of righteousness. So how does someone show themselves to be righteous without ever coming near the word? Well, he says it's done with a simple trick that you'll recognize immediately. Rather than declaring ourselves righteous, we show ourselves to be the enemy of unrighteousness gaining the same result without ever having to utter the R-word. By raging against the evil of your adversary, you take on the gleam of righteousness. You're defending the world from evil, after all. But you stay far from religion or even an obligation to behave well. I think he's right. And he says this trick has worked exceptionally well. The voting public sees politicians as agents of righteousness, even if the word is never used. Which brings us to the decider of all moral questions. Paul asks, can you think of any area of life that isn't impacted by politics these days? Almost everything is, and politics has become the true god of the age. This is something Peter Drucker noted as it was forming. Peter Drucker said, increasingly, politics is not about who gets what, when, how, but about values. Each of them considered to be absolute Politics is about the right to life. It's about the environment. It's about gaining equality for groups alleged to be oppressed. None of these issues is economic. All are fundamentally moral. End quote. So Paul says, politics, to put it simply, has overtaken society. In eras past, politics was limited mainly to the realm of the external. Ruling types would tell you how property would be bought and sold, where soldiers would be sent, and how much of your money would be taken but they seldom told you what to think or how to speak. However, once they got into the habit of telling every child in their domain how to think and speak, as they did with government schools, they found one way after another to expand that dominance throughout the whole of civilization. And that's where we stand now. Politicians feel confident inserting themselves into any and every area of life, and they do precisely that, expecting to be thanked for it. Now, he says, politicians, of course, are anything but righteous. Still, the well-trained politician can use the trick we opened with and suck the populace into a moral drama that pays them off with feelings of righteousness. More than that, the people can feel righteous nearly for free. All they have to do is support a slayer of iniquity. And at the same time, and he says, all of us have noticed this to one extent or another, politics has also overtaken big business. As Frederick C. Howe wrote back in 1906, quote, These are the rules of big business. They have superseded the teachings of our parents and are reduced to a simple maxim. Get a monopoly. Let society work for you and remember that the best of all business is politics. For a legislative grant, franchise, subsidize, or or subsidy rather, or tax exemption is worth more than a Kimberly or Comstock load. Since it does not require any labor, either mental or physical, for its exploitation. End quote. Wow. Which brings us to the fate of the populace. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, honestly, I think it's a good thing that the Western populace is still committed to righteousness, even if they don't realize it. That's a characteristic that may be engaged positively in the future. But he says, right now, the people of the West are massively manipulated by their instinct for righteousness. Still, he says, I don't think this condition will endure forever. All things change, and the dream of righteousness through politics disappoints endlessly, At some point, people will choose to see it. Oh, man. If I ever had a dream, (laughs) with apologies to Martin Luther King, uh, yeah, my dream would be that uh, we would stop trying to get righteousness through politics. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, until then, a lot of disappointment, confusion, and suffering awaits. To put it bluntly, so long as the Western public believes in the union of righteousness and politics, it will be strip-mined without mercy and without end. There is nothing to stop it, and more is never enough for the ruling and strip-mining types. But he says, once they stop playing political make-believe, great things await the people of the West. May it be soon. Isn't that an interesting commentary? Again, I've got a link to this in my show notes at com. If you haven't subscribed, I would encourage you, please, consider, just click on the subscribe button. It's going to ask for your email. And I know people are sometimes a little bit reticent about, you know, sharing their email. I don't know about this. I worry, you know, that it's going to be handed off or sold or bartered away to other people. I won't share it with anybody. But I will send you a copy of my show notes each day that I do the program. And uh, that's just so you have some tangible links to follow up on either the guests or the articles that I'm sharing with you. I promise I, I try to find interesting things, and I don't always have time to get to every article that I include in the show notes. And, and if I could pat myself on the back, I also, also love to come up with some really fun and sick memes that I get to share. And <laughs> that's half the fun of it, is finding a, an appropriate meme to headline each day's show notes. Okay, those who are subscribers know. Those who aren't, well, there's something you can see for yourself. And if I could go off on a brief tangent just for a moment... One of the things I love about memes is they give us the ability to fight a trillion-dollar propaganda machine with simple humor. There's a place for satire, there's a place for parody, and I think one of the, the greatest advantages that it gives is it uses humor to indirectly attack ideas or attitudes more so than just people. Yes, some people become memes, but... If you look at each meme, especially a well-done meme, it's it's always about attacking an attitude. And this has been going on for a long time. You know, if you if you've never read Voltaire or uh oh, who else would be another good one? Rabelais. I would urge caution with Rabelais. <laughs> he was kind of the South Park creator of his time, you know, for for the 1500s that guy he got away with some really rank and just awful stuff but there was purpose behind it he wasn't just trying to be a potty mouth he was actually again skewering various ideas and mocking certain attitudes that uh, that were holding sway over the people and one of the ways to do that is through humorous exaggeration and sometimes you know really extreme exaggeration i think most of the humor today is a little more subtle but boy i do love me a good meme and if you go back through my show, mo- show notes, you'll see that that is definitely one of the high points of my day is finding some great meme that clearly expresses some kind of sentiment that sometimes is hard to put into words. But people will, will definitely take a second look and maybe even give it some consideration when it's accompanied by a degree of humor. And there's, these, there's the added benefit, too, that if there is one thing that enemies of freedom cannot stand or that control freaks cannot stand, it's being mocked. So, Yep, that's, that's one of my vices. I like to see a finger stuck in the eye of the oh-so-important. I like to mock them myself. If only to watch them fume and sputter in impotent rage. We'll be back in a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are about to get a
1: double dose of one of my favorite writers, and that would be James Bovard. A couple great articles from him. Um, since, uh, since the Davos folks just met uh, in uh, Switzerland here the other day, the World Economic Forum, Uh, I thought it would be fun to to give you a little bit of a rundown, and Jim does a wonderful job of summarizing what's going on here. This is from the Brownstone Institute. He wrote this. This was published on the Brownstone Institute's uh, website. It's titled, May the WEF, or World Economic Forum, Suffer the People's Resistance. Jim Bovard says the World Economic Forum had its annual conference last week in Davos, Switzerland. Once again, the Davos crowd ran a demolition derby for the destruction of liberty around the globe. The WEF seized the COVID pandemic to champion a great reset to radically increase the power of politicians over every aspect of modern life. In June of 2020, the WEF announced that the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies from education to social contracts and working conditions. Every country from the United States to China, must participate. We need a great reset of capitalism. By the way, that's their words. So the COVID policies and vaccines that the WEF championed were complete disasters. Thus, one of the WEF's big themes this year, restore trust. (laughs) More than 60 heads of state from around the world flew in to blather about why they deserve more trust and deference from the people they plunder and oppress. Bovard says the W.E.F. seeks to restore trust by not honestly admitting that it peddled horrible advice to governments and the media, but instead by crushing dissent, more or less. Though W.E.F. is proclaiming the greatest peril humanity now faces is misinformation and disinformation. And how can we recognize misinformation? Well, James Bovard says easy. It denies that W.E.F. cronies should rule the world. Okay, that's a paraphrase. He says, The World Economic Forum's latest Global risks Report warns, quote, Some governments and platforms may fail to act to effectively curb falsified information and harmful content, making the definition of truth, in quotation marks, increasingly contentious across societies. So in other words, governments must suppress falsified information to save truth. You can see where that's headed, right? Bovard says the World Economic Forum presumes governments are founts of truth, regardless of endless rascality from practically every political party on Earth. Apparently, anyone who manages to capture political power with a gun or ballot automatically becomes trustworthy. The WEF notion that governments deserve deference is practically a theological edict. But that is a primary source of the WEF's peril to humanity, and this folly is compounded by the presumption that vastly increasing punitive power is also necessary to redeem humanity. Now, one of the wackiest shows at Davos was performed by British environmentalist activist Jojo Meta, chief of the Stop Ecocide Now movement. She hectored Davos' attendees to recognize that people making money from farming or fishing could be as guilty as people committing mass murder and genocide. But if the elites succeed in stopping farmers from farming and fishermen from fishing, future Swiss shindigs may run short of caviar. The WEF previously promised young people that by the year 2030 you will own nothing and be happy. Davos attendees, of course, are exempt from that lofty edict. Recent edit, recent political reforms, rather, in many nations have furthered the first promise, ravaging private property rights and subverting individual independence. But the world's kingpins will need to tighten all the mental thumbscrews for propertyless serfs to be happy. Public euphoria could be in especially short supply considering other policies championed at the World Economic Forum. Individual carbon footprint trackers are a popular panacea at Davos. And WEF has proposed the setting up of acceptable limits for personal emissions. How many burps will it take to get sent to a re-education camp? These types of footprint trackers will be useless without imposing universal digital identification. Another WEF pet project. How can government serve people unless it can find and accost them at any moment, day or night? Now vaccine passports are also, a, also a cause celeb for this crowd. Count on the master wizards to exert far more effort to compel injections than to assure vaccines actually provide the protection they promise. While congressional committees in the United States probe the COVID COVID policy failures and cover-ups, the Davos crew continues to effectively, continues rather by effectively, whooping up a worldwide biosecurity state. Now, he points out that the WEF is also gung-ho on central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. The U.S. dollar has lost more than 97% of its value since the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. But politicians deserve more arbitrary power over the currency, right? Never forget that cash is printed freedom. But CBDCs have powerful appeal to would-be financial tyrants. Saul Almarova, uh, Joe Biden's nominee for comptroller of the currency, proposed in 2021 to give government total control over every person's finances. There will be no more private bank accounts, and all of the deposit accounts will be held directly at the Fed. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Now, Jim Bovard also points out that climate change is probably the WEF's best short-term hope to put a halo over tyranny. He says this is a topic which requires boundless censorship in order to keep peasants in their place cartoonists have long ridiculed all the private jets that fly in for the wef conference such details need to be suppressed on world security grounds or some such crap the same is true for the appalling failure of green energy schemes such as windfalls to provide energy at reasonable prices to boost confidence in the all-electric future government sensors will need to be extra vigilant during harsh winter weather so that people are not warned that their tesla becomes a useless block of metal during cold snaps But the point of the climate change hysteria is not to protect either the environment or humanity. It is to provide a pretext for perpetual, boundless subjugation by the elite. If Davos folks were meeting in the woods and subsisting on nuts and berries, they would have more credibility to lecture everyone else on their diets. WEF Chairman Klaus Schwab practically echoed Marx's Communist Manifesto, warning of a new specter haunting the world. Schwab derided an anti-system which is called libertarianism, which moves to tear down everything which creates some kind of influence of government into private lives. But it's not libertarians' fault that Schwab's standard for some kind of influence of government is eerily similar to medieval serfdom. Schwab also warned of the rising danger of individuals becoming egocentric, And we all know that the worst form of selfishness is refusal to submit to your superiors. (laughs) He says the next effective rebuttal of the WEF sirens of subjugation came from the newly elected president of Argentina. Javier Mille came to Davos and exhorted the Friends of Freedom around the globe, do not be intimidated either by the political class or the parasites who live off the state. The state is the problem itself. Millet's scoff at people, at people motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, was perhaps the ultimate face slap for the self proclaimed saviours. Many of the follies championed at Davos, Davos, rather, arise from the boneheaded delusion that political power is irredeemably benevolent. We should not trust elitists to portray truth as the same type of despicable luxury as eating meat or owning your own automobile and we should not trust those who seek to convert officialdom into a priesthood with the right to blindfold people, to muzzle them, and to slash their living standard. Luckily, people still have the freedom to scoff on social media, thanks in large part to Elon Musk. Maybe the next Davos Confab will convince critics to cease referring to the World Enslavement Forum. Will the WEF cease fearing runaway skepticism with the same dread that old southern plantation owners viewed runaway slaves? What a beautiful piece there from Jim Bovard. Uh, again, I have a link to this in my show notes. One other article that I'm going to encourage you to take a look at, this is actually from the New York Post, and Bovard warns about how uh, Big Brother is watching what you buy. says, hope you pay in cash. So if you don't want to be, the, I guess the Biden administration has secretly created a new tripwire, anything you purchase can be used against you. So right now, the feds are paying close attention to people who purchase Bibles and other media containing extremist views. That's per the House Judiciary Committee. After the January 6th Capitol Clash, the Biden administration vastly expanded federal surveillance of average Americans. So they're looking for their suspicious behavior definitions to expand to track extremism indicators, including transportation charges like bus tickets, rental cars or plane tickets for travel to areas with no apparent purpose. Or the purchase of books, including religious texts. Now, if you bought a gun or ammo since 2021, Team Biden bureaucrats may have already classified you as a potential active shooter. It's a great article. I hope you'll take the time to read it. And, uh, you know, this is this is the best advice that he offers, that Jim Bovard offers in this article is, consider making more of your purchases in cash. There's a reason why these uh, these world government leaders want to move toward a cashless or digital kind of currency. They want to know what you're buying. They want to know who you're buying it from. Are you being properly taxed at every turn? Cash provides you with a very easy way to get around all of that uh, intrusiveness. And at least for the moment, it's still legal. So, don't just revel in wrong think, revel in privacy. Take care of your purchases. Keep in mind, Big
0: Brother is watching and very interested in what you're buying. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Final segment of today's program. I want to throw a quick plug out here, too, for uh, my side hustle. It's called Hide in Plain Sight. Yes, it's a play on my name. But uh, if you haven't checked this out, this is a Substack I launched a little over a year ago. Um,. You know, I don't have a ton of subscribers. I think I've got a little over 500 subscribers. It's a free service, although I do have some subscribers who who very kindly uh, purchase a subscription. It's not something I make mandatory. I don't put things behind a paywall. But if you are looking for encouragement, maybe even just a little bit of, of inspiration, this is a very short 250-word essay. I do do a I also do a an audio version of it. It's about a minute and a half that just encourages individuals like you and myself i I, I try to take my own advice to focus on the things that actually matter, the things that actually move the needle in your direction when it comes to this obtaining better uh, you know more freedom, more autonomy, uh, a better sense of who you are and what you stand for, and less wasted effort on, you know, projecting to the world, well, this is what I'm against, you know, because that's the shortcut a lot of people try to take in order to appear as good people. And it just, if you want to be a good person, you got to live like a good person. If you really want to live a life of your choosing, you cannot wait for permission from somebody else. And that's the kind of stuff I talk about. Just little uh, elevator speech, two minute truth bomb kind of thing. I've, I've heard it described as a number of things, but I don't talk about politics in this hide in plain sight. Now, if you go to my website, the show.com there is a link that'll take you directly to hide in plain sight. Otherwise, hide in plain sight, hide with a substack dot substack.com. Thank you for attending my TED Talk. Okay, quick a quick couple of articles I wanted to point you toward. Uh, one of the greatest skills we can teach our kids is to question everything. Fantastic article today that I saw published on lewrockwell.com. This is from Francis, Francis Christian. And here's what Francis Christian says. Going forward, our ability to question everything is going to be like the oxygen that sustains every breath we take. Asking why, when, how, how come, what, and where will make or break stuff for our civilization. As unattractive as it may seem to adults, the training of the child to question everything had better start at home. No school will teach it, peer pressure will not foster it, and the culture certainly will not support it. It must be taught at home. Unquestioning obedience to parents is a virtue that's been transmitted from generation to generation, but he says it has served its time. Like the retreating banner of retreating troops, it must disappear into the dusty distance, even whilst we welcome fresh troops with new tactics, new energy, and a new banner that says, "'Question everything.'" Unquestioning obedience to parents must become obsolete in our homes, since a a much greater virtue is that of survival. Only a surviving child and adult can contemplate such admittedly laudable virtues as obedience. The child's natural tendency to ask why must be encouraged and praised, and perhaps it will even lead to more time spent between parent and child, more understanding, more respect and love. The extra time invested by the parents is in in encouraging the child to question everything and its aftermath of the obligation to answer the questions convincingly or to admit uncertainty is more time well spent. It will be nothing less than life-saving to the child. Now, just to put a little finer point on this, he says the dystopian tyranny that wishes to rule over us depends on our subservience and unquestioning obedience, They had their sophisticated training methods, too, which encompassed the school system, social media, legacy media, the university, and uniparty government, called liberal, labor, conservative, etc., according to the flavor of the day, which will likely be elected again and again in the foreseeable future to carry out the will of their masters. Questioning everything will not so much be punished severely by the tyranny as educated out of the realm of possibility in children. Large sections of society are already under this spell, including physicians, teachers, and, alas, children themselves. What government says must be true. I love it. Question everything, he says, must be the watchword for our generation and the next. The book of Proverbs in the Bible is speaking to our parents, too, when it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The parent cannot possibly afford the luxury of being irritated and petulant when the child questions parental command or advice or information. Instead, the parent must welcome the question, welcome the natural tendency of the child to prepare for its own future, its own survival, by asking questions. Questioning everything must be regarded as an essential survival skill that parents have the sacred duty to teach their children. Again, this is from Francis Christian. Uh, This is actually from his substack so you might even consider subscribing. There's a link in today's show notes which will uh, take you directly to that substack. All right, one final article. This, this one left me feeling a little bit uneasy, and I guess it's because uh, I'm, I'm watching the possibility of much wider military conflict looming in the Middle East, and I've seen a couple of news stories in the last few days talking about how uh, U.S. officials are noticing that uh, their recruitment numbers for the military are way, way down. And specifically, the backbone of the American military, which, like it or not, has been white males, they're just not signing up in numbers like they used to. Gee, I wonder why. When you put soldiers in high heels and make them wear fake breasts or a fake pregnancy outfit, you know, so that they can learn to empathize with what it's like to be a pregnant woman, you're taking them away from their task. Which is to kill people and break things in the name of defending this nation. So it's become kind of a big social laboratory. And now, you know, you've seen I'm sure you've seen some of the ads for the military the recruitment ads showing, you know, the the new woke. Oh, look, it's me and my two moms, so proud of my military service and stuff. It's it's just I part of it, I think, is is a deliberate humiliation to the honor and and the the, the system of service, you know, that that has always been represented by service in the military. But now we have, uh, we have a a dearth of people signing up. This could be very interesting, you know, given, you know, some of the things that are shaping up, not just in the Middle East, but, uh, but elsewhere around the world. And there's an article I'm including. This is from AmericanGreatness.com. The author is Jeremy Carl. White Americans are quiet quitting our leading institutions. He asks the question, can American's institutions run as well in the 21st century if white Americans are quiet quitting them in despair? Because it looks like we're about to find out. Now, if you haven't heard the term quiet quitting, that's something that kind of took off during the uh, work at home trend during the COVID-19 pandemic. According to Harvard Business Review, quiet quitters continue to fulfill their primary responsibilities, but they're less willing to engage in activities known as citizenship behaviors, so no more staying late, no more showing up early, or attending non-mandatory meetings. Simply put, having perceived their jobs not to have value and meaning, they do no more than is absolutely necessary. Now, there's a debate among scholars as to the extent of the quiet-quitting phenomenon, but there's increasing evidence that white Americans are increasingly quiet-quitting America's leading institutions. And the possible implications for American society are profound. This phenomenon, he says, is a consequence of the trends I write about in my forthcoming book, The Unprotected Class, about the rise of anti-white racism in American culture, and how both formal and informal anti-white discrimination have become a factor in almost every area of American public life. Little surprise then that more and more young whites, especially young white men, are looking over the uh, overall environment and saying, yeah, thanks, but no thanks, to our leading institutions. Last week, the armed forces announced the number of white recruits had fallen precipitously over the last five years, According to a report at Military.com, most of the Army's much-discussed incoming recruiting shortfall is due largely to this dramatic decline. While a bit more than 44,000 white Americans signed up to join the Army in 2018, that number cratered to just over 25,000 by 2023, a stunning drop in a short period of time when Black and Hispanic recruiting was largely flat. As a result... White recruits went from 56.4% of soldiers in 2018 to 44% in 2023. Now, even military leaders attribute this decline in significant part to the souring of conservative whites, who've traditionally formed the backbone of the military, but now are looking at the woke anti-white military under Joe Biden and opting out. A senior army official told Military.com, there's a level of prestige in parts of conservative America with service that has degraded. U.S. Marine combat veteran Jesse Kelly put it this way on X. My sons will not serve. I don't have a single veteran friend who's encouraging his sons to serve. Most are actively discouraging them from doing so. Oh, I can just hear how the rabid left is going to try and spin this. Why? Where's their sense of duty? Where's their sense of patriotism? No, it's more like where is their sense of wanting to serve a system that has been thoroughly corrupted and that actively hates them? and tries to humiliate them. I'd be watching for a draft when the next big conflict brews up, but I also think you're going to see some spectacular resistance
0: to a draft. And deservedly so. This is The Brian Hyde Show.